This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So tonight we have something different in mind. Um, the topic is the vineyard and the vine, reflections on a biblical theme. And I'll just start with a rhetorical question, <clears throat> two, really two rhetorical questions. Is the Bible a resource for us in our daily lives? Uh, do we turn to Scripture to help us understand the world and our own lives in it, um, how we should live, etc.? And uh, it's, not, it's not just a question about uh, daily quiet times and the discipline of doing that. It's more a question of what our perception of the Bible is and what's the effect of that perception on us. <clears throat> uh, I think for, for many Christian people today, the honest answer would be not really. Um, thankfully, that's not the case for everybody. But uh, I want to suggest that one reason for this is that people have lost, or many people, I should say, have lost confidence in the idea that the Bible really tells one coherent story from beginning to end. I think many people perceive the Bible as a disjointed uh, compilation of ancient, inaccessible texts. Uh, no discernible common threads tying it all together. Uh, no coherent message throughout. Uh, there's clearly no single story being told throughout the pages of the Bible. And so I think many, many factors have contributed to this impression uh, that I can't possibly address. Uh, but there's been both scholarly and popular opinions that have played a part in this. <clears throat> but the result has been, uh, I think for many people, a kind of apathy towards the Bible. These are Christian people, but with an apathy towards the Bible. Without taking much time to really investigate, many folks assume that Individual books of the Bible have been twisted and altered and patched together after the fact to suit the particular needs of long-forgotten religious communities. Right. <clears throat> um, there's an assumption that the existing canon is the way it is only because of political controversies in the early church, not because the books of the Bible actually form a coherent whole. Uh, another assumption is that the New Testament is just a departure from the Hebrew Scriptures, not part of the same continuous story. And so Jesus' followers are thought of as being responsible for inventing a new religion. Judaism is sort of the springboard for that, but there's, you, know, you don't expect to find any real continuity between the two. And then uh, to add to it, I think uh, you know many of us have probably heard sermons in church where biblical passages are cherry-picked kind of at will and out of context, and we don't have much of a sense of how it fits into the broader story. Um, and so we ask, who can know what it really means anyway? Um, seems like anyone can use the Bible to defend anything. <clears throat> How can intelligible words from God make it through all the human cultural filters of thousands of years? You know, how, how do we really expect to 
to find wisdom for right now in this. And this ends up being, you know, practically speaking, a huge wet blanket on, on Bible reading. Uh, differences in time and culture and language can make us feel impossibly removed from uh, the true meaning, if there is one, you know. And uh, I would say, I mean, this is a generalization, but I've talked to many people just here at Labrie for whom, you know, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, people people who have grown up in the church, uh, but don't often take uh, go, go to any great effort to to, um, to understand what's in the Bible. Um, so ba- basic biblical literacy is not what it used to be. Probably, you know, certainly not a hundred years ago. But um, let alone turn to it for wisdom and guidance and how to live right now for encouragement. <clears throat> so there's there's obvious problems with this. Um, Libri, we try to lean against it as much as we can uh, and encourage people to actually cut, you know pick up the Bible themselves. Engage in it. If you have questions, study, read up, read commentaries. Because um, there actually is an amazing coherence and a unity of voice throughout the Bible, especially considering the breadth of time that the books of the Bible are written in and the, uh, and the diversity of, of sort of cultural changes that have gone on even within the stories of the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> but we shouldn't expect to see this coherence without, without making an effort. So for this reason, I... I'm always excited to explore ways of reading the Bible that draw us into an awareness of the of the meta narrative of Scripture, that sort of highlight the fact that it is truly one story. Uh, so these are ways of reading that that highlight the fact that it really is a grand story. It is complicated, maybe yes, uh, at times mysterious and disturbing, yes, uh, but nonetheless coherent uh, in its plot line, if you want to say that, in the arc of its narrative. Uh, coherent in its doctrine, coherent in its ethics. Uh, this doesn't mean that there's not questions in each one of those areas, but it means, but there is a general, a general coherence to the Bible, which is pretty shocking given, given how many years it was written over. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Anna Friedrich, my colleague, has done a lecture, um, doing something like this, uh, looking at biblical references to the hands of God. And just, it was just a really interesting way into, uh, into the Bible, almost like a, a lens through which to, to, to see some of the same things in a fresh and new way. And so I want to do something like that tonight. Um, it's really a survey of a, of a metaphorical theme that stretches across most of the Bible. It's the metaphor of the vineyard and the many things connected with it. So vines, grapes, transplanting, pruning, harvesting, wine presses, wine, all of that. The, sort of the trappings of, of uh, the vineyard. And it is by no means a tight and consistent metaphor throughout the Bible. You shouldn't look for that. Uh, biblical writers seem to be okay mixing metaphors, metaphors, uh, chopping and changing and, and, and adapting something that came before for, for a current moment. And so it's a very flexible metaphor. Uh, it's like a big shifting, morphing kind of body of images uh, that starts early on in Scripture but gets picked up by later writers carried a little further, picked up again by somebody else, carried a little further. Um, and hopefully I'll demonstrate that. Uh, but despite, despite the, uh, the looseness of the, of the metaphor, um, it's put to work to tell the same story. Uh, basically, a story of God's care for human beings, human rebellion, God's active pursuing grace into that rebellion, 
which results in reconciliation and provision and a renewed dependence on God. And so that this is sort of the um, the overall story that these these uses of the metaphor are kind of contributing to throughout. And I'll give you a little bit of a sense of where we're going here. I'm just going to talk a bit about wine in ancient Israel, very uh, based on a solid week of research that I did. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is all, this, a lot of this is new to me as well. So, so uh, what, I'll just say at the beginning, one book that's been very, very helpful to me uh, that Dave lent me is The Spirituality of Wine by Gisela Kreglinger. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. She's a German woman who grew up on a, on a, on a vineyard. Actually, her family uh, ran a vineyard. And she, um, this is just a wonderful biblical reflection on, on, on wine in, in the Bible, as well as uh, a lot of the things I'll be talking about tonight. So definitely have, have, have leaned heavily on her. <clears throat> yeah, so talk a bit about, about winemaking, uh, and then getting into the metaphor in the Old Testament and extending the metaphor on into the New Testament and then trying to kind of tie it together a little bit at the end. Um, but first of all, wine in ancient Israel. Uh, in order to understand the vine and the vineyard as metaphors in the Bible, it's important to understand that uh, at least a little bit about what it literally was, right? Because uh, if you don't know what the what the literal uh, role of, of vineyards and vines were in the story uh, or in, in the sort of cultural background, uh, you're we're likely to either misinterpret the metaphor or or at least lose a lot of the nuance or the potential richness of it. So, uh, wine making and wine drinking is a very, very ancient human practice. Um, there are very, very old written accounts of making wine. There are also ancient paintings of vines and pressing grapes to make wine uh, in Egypt, for, for instance. Um, wine was a part of the ancient Near East economy. So there's lots of evidence that there was wine uh, used in trade long before the stories uh, that are told in the Bible. Uh, there was an Egyptian tomb that was discovered of a pharaoh uh, in which there were, I forget how many, something like 700 clay jars, a total of 4,500 liters. Uh, I think the wine had all gotten messed up and evaporated or whatever, but like they, it was clear that wine had been in these. Uh, and they were able to, to, to trace it to Palestine, that's where it came from. And so it's 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 clear that you know, and that even for you know back then, even for Pharaoh, that was a lot of wine to have in your in your tomb that you weren't going to drink, right? Um, well, I guess he thought he would, but um, in any case, the the um, uh, it was a part of trade. Wine wine was was uh, <clears throat> was carried all over the place from one place to another. Uh, it's clear though that wine was a part of life even earlier than this. Prehistoric people made and drank wine, meaning people were making wine before they uh, wrote things down. <clears throat> so we know this because of archaeological evidence. Um, if you want to read about it, there's a lot of geeky articles out there. But um, uh, archaeological evidence of very, very old clay jar fragments that have uh, uh, still contain chemical traces of, of wine in them because the clay is fairly porous and a lot of times um, you can... You know, from doing a detailed chemical analysis of something, you can tell what was stored in the jar, right? And so, uh, you know, estimates uh, vary, uh, but something around 6,000 BC, there's there's evidence of people making wine um, in a in a disciplined like uni like uniform way, not just like oh, we had some grape juice that fermented, 
uh, let's drink it, it's actually an intentional making of wine in a routine way. Um, <clears throat> so really not long after people started making clay jars to store things in. <laughs> pretty pretty soon after that. Um, <clears throat> one of the early references in the Bible is Genesis 9, and this is, uh, you know, after the flood subsides and the ark lands, Noah gets out, and it seems like one of the first things he does is plant a vineyard and, and make wine, and the, the story continues about him um, becoming drunk. But in any case, his... It, uh, um, chapter 9, verse 20 says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. This is like his first agricultural effort um, after getting off the boat. At some point early on, people began to domesticate wild grapes. Uh, so wild grapes continued to grow, uh, but were considered poor fruit, sort of uh, sour, sparse, uh, in, comparison, in comparison with cultivated grapes. So people learned uh, that by carefully pruning vines, you could actually channel the energy of a plant to produce more fruit and less leaves, leafage. <laughs> um, no one obviously had a sophisticated understanding of, of genetics, plant genetics, but uh, by encouraging strains that were more fruitful, domesticated grapevines diverged from wild grapevines. And this, you see this in the Bible. There's actually references to these. We'll, we'll look at later. Uh, one revolutionary method uh, of propagating good grapevines was by grafting. And so uh, grafting is a process of joining a severed branch from one plant onto the trunk or the rootstock of another so that they function as one plant even though they are genetically different. So it requires precision. I've, I've tried it a couple times before, um, but um, I think not without much success. But it requires precision because... The uh, the live green tissue just beneath the bark of both the branch and the rootstock has to line up perfectly, mm-hmm. and uh, and then the scar where that where that junction is has to be bound up tightly so it doesn't get bumped, but also so uh, to protect it from from drying out. <clears throat> and this enables the vulnerable branch to begin receiving moisture from the root uh, of the other plant immediately. Otherwise, it would wither and die within a few hours. And so the uh, the geeky horticultural term is vascular continuity. There needs to be vascular continuity between the rootstock and the branch, meaning moisture that's drawn up from the root passes directly into the into the branch. <clears throat> Eventually, that scar will heal, and you would never know necessarily that the that the branch was grafted on. Uh, this is absolutely uh, the norm in any kind of fruit tree today. You know, most most fruit trees and nut trees are are a particular kind of uh, branch from a tree that that produces good fruit grafted onto a strong root, and you can often see in orchards the place where the graft took place. So it's it's a totally normal thing to do. But it was very early, just discovered very early on in human culture to, that they could do this. Uh, why would you bother doing this? Is the question. Um, the main reason was well, one reason is that most most plants, if you just take a plant, it, it, it takes quite a few years for it to be mature enough to produce fruit. This is the case with apple trees and grapes and everything. Uh, but if you have a young rootstock and you graft a branch from an older vine onto it, you immediately get the fruit because because the, the the new branch is is mature. But another reason uh, that people grafted grapevines was that it was the best way to propagate the kind of grapes you wanted. The branches are the part that, that produce flowers and fruit, 
Uh, so if you have a vine that has particularly good grapes, you can cut the branch from that vine and graft them onto another vine and get more and more of the grapes you want. So you can have a whole vineyard producing <laughs> fruit that's genetically identical uh, to my best vine, but all growing from the roots of inferior plants, right? And so it's just it's a way of, of sort of specializing and, and emphasizing the the kind of the kind of uh, plant you actually want. And uh, <clears throat> some scholars have suggested that uh, the image in Jeremiah two, at the very beginning of Jeremiah, uh, verse twenty one, is referring to a grafted vine. So there's there's something like this going on. Uh, a grafted vine, and one of the problems that sometimes happens when you graft a vine. So Jeremiah 2 says this, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Uh, how could a vine that's supposed to produce beautiful domesticated grapes uh, suddenly produce bad wild grapes? One possible answer is that the branch that was intended to bear fruit was a graft from a good vine. But unfortunately, the rootstock sprouted its own branches below the graft. So the rootstock can still send shoots out. They will not be what you want. <laughs> They'll be the wild variety. Um, and so the image in Jeremiah 2 is is of something that is has been refined and cultivated and cared for, but it's reverting to its former wild, unfruitful state. The wild rootstock rejects the graft and prefers its former ways, so to speak. Um, it's a backslider, a backslider of a of a grapevine. <clears throat> Paul in Romans 11 talks at length about grafting, but he's talking about the people of Israel, Gentiles uh, becoming one and the same people in Christ. Uh, he, he's referring to olive trees when he's in this, but but it's an extended uh, use of this metaphor of grafting to talk about. Uh, you who who used to not belong to God are now part of the people of God, and what's you know what's the the new uh, role of Israel in this? I, I can't say I fully understand everything he says in there, but the grafting metaphor is clear <laughs> in a sense. He's using it really in, in an interesting way. In general, grapevines were just very tough plants that were capable of producing fruit in unlikely and inhospitable places. And this is this is a, an interesting part of of the metaphor of of a grapevine. Um, they tend to do well in dry and rocky soils. You don't find good grapes growing in like a very humid rainforest. Uh, they, they prefer drier climates. So the, the hill country of Israel was pretty well suited for growing grapes. If you remember uh, when Joshua takes the spies into the promised land to kind of scope out what this place is like, uh, what they bring back to show the people that this is a good land. So a huge bunch of grapes, right? This is, um, so, <clears throat> oh, I should just, it's much nicer to look at that than at my, um, outline. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> when, okay, so, uh, so you have a, a vineyard and, uh, the grapes, the vines are producing a good crop. When the grapes are ripe and ready, the harvesters, have to cut them off the vine and carry them to the wine press. And if you had a big vineyard, this was a lot of work that you had to do in a very short amount of time. Because when the grapes are ready to go, they're ready to go. And if you wait too long, they're molding and, and uh, getting too sweet and, and rotting on the vine. 
And so you suddenly have a lot of work to do in a very short amount of time. This is kind of the backdrop in Jesus' parable of the, of the laborers in the vineyard, where this, this vineyard owner can't find enough people to do the work that has to get done in his day, right? He keeps going back to the market and finding more and more people. Um, but <clears throat> wine presses. Let's see. There's just more interesting pictures. These are all the pictures I should have been showing you while I was talking. This is the aerial picture of somewhere in Israel of, of some current day vineyards. But this this is a, a ancient wine press in Israel that was discovered. It, it, it seems to me it's kind of a fancy one, but I'm not sure everybody had ones that, that were this cool. But um, <clears throat> they were open to the air, uh, didn't happen inside, and they were literally cut directly into the limestone of the ground, and maybe sometimes built up with with loose stone as well. Uh, the pressing floor was this large flat surface. Uh, and this is up here, this big rectangular area up here. This is where the grapes would be dumped and crushed by trampling. Wow. So people would, in, in uh, you know, barefooted people would be trampling on the grapes to, to crush them and get the juice out of the grapes. Uh, Isaiah uses the imagery of press, of the pressing floor to describe God's judgment. So this is actually a disturbing picture of what crushing the grapes on the, on the, on the pressing floor looks like, and he, he's, he compares, this is in Isaiah 63, compares the, the blood of people to the blood of grapes, you know, um, you can look it up if you like, um, but the juice would flow out of the pressing floor into a narrow channel, sloping downwards and emptying into a fermentation vat, so there's some kind of hole here, and the, the, the grape juice flows through this channel, out into this vat here. A lot of the, a lot of the um, wine presses would have a couple different vats that were connected with, with more channels, so you'd have a, uh, different things going on. This, is, this actually might be what this is here. But in any case, the, the juice comes out here, and evidently they would uh, stuff this channel full of thorns or grass or something to act as a filter so that none of the, none of the um, wine skins and stems and, and seeds would get into the wine itself. <coughs> And then, uh, basically, this in, in the fermentation vat, that's where the grape juice becomes wine. And so it starts to fizz, and the, the, the natural yeasts that are on the wines, the, the grape skins, uh, consumes the sugar in the juice and produces alcohol, and it, it gets turns into a nice big purple fizzy bath. And after a few days, it's, uh, it's removed and put into clay jars. And that was really the, the way that people preserved wine. You had to, you had to pretty quickly isolate it from the air to keep it from turning into vinegar. So... Uh, clay jars with narrow with narrow um, tops were an important part of storing wine, and they would often seal them with with a wet clay lid. They would just would stick over the top, and then would then would keep it airtight. Um, at times, I think I even read somewhere that they would pour olive oil into it because o- the oil is lighter than the wine. It would float to the surface and create a seal, mm-hmm. and so that the wine would would remain wine. <clears throat> And actually, interestingly, the, uh, the ferment, because of the fermentation process and the way the yeast kind of takes over, uh, making wine was actually an important way of pre- preserving drinkable water. <laughs> you couldn't preserve water for very long without it getting nasty and, and uh, um, no longer potable. But uh, wine you could, you could keep for a while. So 
grapes, vines, and vineyards were all a part of life in ancient Israel. Uh, the first thing to recognize is that uh, whenever the Bible uses this imagery, it implies the making of and the enjoyment of wine. Uh, some grapes were grown for eating, but the majority of the time that the that vines and vineyards are mentioned in the Bible, it's, it's wine that's on people's minds. <clears throat> so the vine imagery that the Bible uses only makes sense if a literal abundance of good wine is considered a good thing, right? <laughs> Otherwise, the metaphor doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Gisela Kreglinger, uh, who wrote the book I just mentioned, The Spirituality of Wine, she makes the point that in the Bible, uh, good wine is considered a direct blessing from God as well as often a, a symbol of his faithfulness symbol of his faithfulness, which is why it's so often a part of celebration, a part of all the festivals celebrating God's story and his goodness and his deliverance. There's obvious, throughout the Bible, there's obvious prohibitions against drinking too much um, and abusing alcohol, but it's, it's never a blanket criticism of wine consumption per se. Rather, it's the misuse of it and the neglect of other responsibilities, uh, before God because of drunkenness. So, uh, <clears throat> these were all, it, it, wine was an ordinary part of life. I think that, I think, uh, excellent wine and wine in huge quantities may have been an extravagance that only rich people could enjoy. Uh, but ordinary people drank some wine fairly regularly. <laughs> um, and it, it would have been common for a prosperous farmer to, to make some wine to sell and some wine for his household to enjoy. There's this interesting uh, passage in 1 Kings 4. It's talking about Solomon's lifetime, and it's it's just a little short line that's supposed to communicate, uh, give us a picture of sort of ordinary prosperity and security. It's a wholesome picture. And it says, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And then the prophet Micah, later on, picks up on this uh, and, and, and projects that image into the future. Someday, you know, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so it gets picked up by Micah and used prophetically for a picture of the future, which is good and, and wholesome. <clears throat> so there's lots of other interesting references that are just literal descriptions of, of vineyards and vines that aren't metaphorical. They're just telling you stories about um, there's there's laws in Exodus and Leviticus about not going over your your vineyard a second time to get every last grape and not picking up the ones that you drop so that the poor can glean from your vineyard. Um, so there's all kinds of things that relate to it. Um, but the main point I want to make is that in the in a agrarian culture, all of these agrarian images are are it's like the most readily available material for teaching, right? Um, you think of the mileage that Jesus gets out of seeds and sowing and soil and bearing fruit and harvest and wheat and chaff and all, all these, these images of, um, uh, are used metaphorically because they were people understand and they're what people are, are dealing with each, each day. Images of abundant grain and olives and grapes are particularly meaningful to people in the ancient Near East because they, they symbolize security and health and continued life. Um, they're concrete signs of God's blessing. So, um, and this goes for all the language about vines and vineyards as well. Um, 
they're using uh, the biblical writers are using very familiar ideas to, to nearly everybody who's who's uh, listening. And so it makes for an, a powerful extended metaphor throughout the Bible. And I want to turn to that right now. And we're going to look uh, first at Isaiah, Isaiah 5. That's sort of a longish passage. It's not the entire chapter. The chapter goes on long, long beyond what I'm going to read now. But, but uh, it just gives you the idea. <clears throat> And this is called, uh, this is, has, been, has been named the Song of the Vineyard. So Isaiah 5, uh, starting right at the beginning. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. This is an echo of the Jeremiah text we read earlier. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only a ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night so they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, until it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. Into it, sorry, into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. And again, this it continues on for, for quite a while longer, but this this gives you the basic idea. And so this is a very a very rich text. Uh, it's a it's a it's a hard word of God's judgment, obviously. Um, 
these words seem to specifically be targeting Judah and Jerusalem, which were the last to go into exile around uh, 590 B.C. Um, Israel's northern kingdom fell to Assyria er- earlier than that, <coughs> uh, the early 700s. Uh, God compares himself to the vintner, to, to, the, to the grape grower, and Israel to the vineyard. And right away the metaphor carries a lot of meaning, I think. Um, vineyard is a picture for Israel of their identity. And it communicates uh, both dependence on God, who is the, the vintner, and expectations from God. They're supposed to bear fruit. So one of the, the striking things is the length to which the vintner goes to ensure a good and fruitful harvest. So he does not cut corners. Uh, you could say he maximizes the chance of success with this vineyard. He does all the hard work. Uh, he prepares the soil by removing large rocks. Maybe this is earlier on. Selects good vines, carefully plants them, builds protections against wild animals and human thieves. That's what the the watchtower and the hedge and the wall that he mentions later on are all about. Uh, and then he cuts the wine press. We saw the pictures of that earlier. These, these um, structures cut into the ground. Um, and this means he's anticipating a good crop, right? Everything is about is about the hard work of an, an anticipation of a good crop. And then, uh, all after all this gentle care and attention paid to Israel, uh, his chosen people, um, they're meant to bear fruit and what he finds is wild grapes or a bad crop. And uh, the question arises, so what, so what, is, the, what is the fruit he's talking about here? Uh, Christians use the phrase bearing fruit all the time. I think, well, this is, at least I hear it a lot. Um, fruit. And I use, I use the term a lot, sometimes without stopping to think, what, what am I talking about? Um, but uh, sometimes... Uh, the phrase is bearing fruit is, is fruit is used sort of implicitly to mean converts or the people with whom I share the gospel. You know that that's what bearing fruit really is in God's eyes. But I think it's clear in the in the biblical witness that bearing fruit is much broader, much broader meaning than this. It can mean many more things. Uh, it certainly doesn't exclude that at all. Um, sharing the gospel with people, uh, helping to lead people to Christ. But uh, bearing fruit is, is uh, I think, a much more general category within which that fits. And we see this in Isaiah 5. So, as the vintner is looking for good grapes in his vineyard, God is looking for justice and righteousness in Israel. That's the fruit that God wants to find. And instead, the vintner finds bad fruit, which to God is bloodshed and cries of distress. So, in other words, there's, there's violence and oppression going on in Israel which to God is bad fruit. The following verses in uh, 8, I think it's, yeah, from 8 to, to the end there, uh, contains a series of woes and judgments, which sort of fleshes out what God means by bad fruit, specifically a kind of predatory land grabbing by the rich. <laughs> this is one of the things, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. This is a picture of someone who... He's accumulating more and more land, pushing poor people out, 
um, and just uh, basically taking over, which is, is really in violation of God's law uh, when, he, when he leads the people into the promised land in the first place. <clears throat> uh, and then secondly, interestingly, one of the things that is bad fruit is, is drunkenness and an abuse of alcohol in such a way that it causes people to, to be blind to the work of God's hands. So he's talking about sort of mindless revelry and brawling and this kind of thing that comes from uh, obsessive use of alcohol. Uh, later on, Isaiah sort of mocks this idea of getting drunk as a heroic act. You know, um, it's not really that heroic. So, <clears throat> so the, these kinds of behaviors are, are failures of justice and righteousness, which are the, the fruit that he's talking about. Um, God is looking for. Uh, in his people a right relationship with him which is righteousness and uh, and that righteousness inevitably leads to right relationships between people which is justice uh, fairness and care for the needy and this is a theme this is really the more you read the prophets in the Old Testament this is a theme that comes up again and again uh, not always with the, with the uh, um, the vineyard metaphor but certainly uh, the same thing that's being talked about uh, being in right relationship with God, in other words, the good fruit of being in right relationship with God, in turn bears the good fruit of a just society. The people who truly trust in the Lord as their refuge will treat others well. Because they know God to be their maker, they respect his image in other people. Uh, they know that God has been merciful to them so they can show mercy to others. They know him as the lawgiver and the judge, so they obey his direct commands about how to how to treat other people, particularly the most vulnerable who can't defend themselves. And so this is what the biblical language of fearing God is all about. Uh, the righteous would not dare mistreat another person because they fear God, because uh, they would hate to dishonor him by exploiting a person. And so right worship of Yahweh always flows into, into social justice. And in contrast, which is which is what you see talked about by the prophets a lot, idolatry of whatever variety is always associated with social injustice, uh, which is what we see in the Isaiah text and in many of the other prophets. Um, when we reject the Lord, we tend to dishonor his image bearers, our neighbors and even ourselves, actually. So to worship to worship something that's not God, we degrade ourselves as well as our, our neighbors. So the two this false worship and then a mistreatment of people, social injustice, go hand in hand. Um, and so the Lord looks for justice in Israel, finds cries of distress and violence and oppression, which is the bad fruit. And he pledges to bring judgment on Israel. This is back to... Um, yes, this is the... Uh, trying to find the verse. Anyway, it's in there somewhere. Um... He, uh, he promises judgment in the form of exile uh, for the people's abandonment of righteousness and justice. And then <clears throat> he extends the metaphor and talks about the vineyard removing all the protections he had placed over the vineyard. The hedge and the wall are destroyed so that any person or animal can help themselves to the, to the vineyard. He stops cultivating and tending the vines, which means they go, they go crazy and are no longer fruitful. He doesn't prune them anymore. He lets the weeds and thorns grow up. 
which and I, and I sort of wonder whether this is meant to echo Genesis 3. Um, the natural effects of the fall are allowed to get the upper hand. God is like, okay, thorns can take over. Uh, he even commands the rain to stop watering the vineyards. So this is this is an example of like biblical writers don't always like work tightly with the metaphor and make it. You know, it's clear this is quite a farmer if he can tell the cloud to stop raining. You know, um, but clearly it's God talking about himself. Um, <clears throat> then in verse sixteen, ultimately God is the one who is righteous and just, <clears throat> but the Lord. Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. So the justice and righteousness that God was looking for as good fruit in his people, he doesn't find, but he is the one that's going to uphold those things himself. <clears throat> so um, so this use of the, of the vineyard metaphor is, pr- is pretty much wholly negative, uh, Isaiah makes the comparison between Israel and the vineyard in order to make the point that Israel's not living up to, the, to its calling of, of holiness, and there's going to be consequences to that. Uh, but even so, I think the metaphor carries, there's an undertone, I think to me anyway, it seems to be an undertone there. It's a picture of God as a vintner who is ready to delight in righteousness when he sees it. He wants to see the, the, this good fruit coming out of his people because that's what delights him, but he knows that's what causes them to thrive too. He, he, he legitimately wants these vines to thrive and produce good fruit because it's good for them, not just for him. We're going to move to... Uh, oh, that's a, that's a, a, a picture of a um, watchtower in a vineyard in Bethlehem, actually. Sort of a ruin. A ruin of a watchtower. We're moving along to Psalm 80, which is another important text here. And this is a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph, as a, as a psalm writer, he's not as easy to pin down as David in terms of when, exactly when he was and who he was. Um, there may have been different people writing from a sort of a school of Asaph. We don't know. Um, but the context of the psalm suggests that it's written from exile, looking back on the events that Isaiah 5 is announcing. And so God's judgment has happened in the form of exile, and the question is, what now? And so it's, it's, the, the psalm is from that perspective. <clears throat> psalm 80 is a prayer for restoration. And uh, it looks forward uh, with a measure of hope, but it also looks back at the agonizing memory of being uprooted and taken away from home and dragged to a foreign land. And so there's a refrain that occurs three times in the psalm, and whenever you see that in the psalm, you can you can be sure that that's the core of what's trying to be communicated. Uh, and the refrain is, Restore us, O Lord. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And I'll read it now, and then we'll get into it a bit. <clears throat> I'm sorry if that's very small. Hopefully that's... Can people see that? Okay. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. 
How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, as shoots, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Um, it's interesting that in the very first line of the psalm, God refers to himself as the shepherd of Israel. Um, which is not a normal thing for gods to, not a normal way for gods to identify themselves in the ancient Near East as shepherds of their people. And, uh, I think this is one of many things that Jesus himself picks up on from the psalm, right? <clears throat> but Asaph sort of launches into a, a lament. How long? Will you ignore our cries, O Lord? Our, our tears have been our food. Um, he laments the fact that Israel has been publicly shamed before their neighbors. They're, they're not just the guy next door, but the neighboring nations are laughing at Israel for having been sacked and uh, carried off. And then in verse 8, Asaph tells the story of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt and his establishment of, of Israel in the promised land, but in a similar way to Isaiah, he uses the he tells the story through the imagery of of, of uh, the vineyard, but this time Israel is a vine, just one vine, and God's intention as the good vintner was to transplant the vine from from if you will the infertile soil of slavery uh, to the good soil of the promised land, a place where they can actually worship God uh, and serve Him as He wants them to serve Him. So this language of transplanting has to do with God establishing his people in the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob years and years before. So God brings the vine out of Egypt, which is a, you know, a reference to the Exodus, clearly, and he clears the ground for the vineyard, which is a reference to the conquest and, and settlement of Canaan. Uh, God drove out other nations before it, it says. And... Um, <clears throat> And then there's this description of, of the vine flourishing and expanding. In verses 9 and 11, the vine took deep root, filled up the space between the Jordan River and the sea, east to west, and it even says it covers the mountains with its shade. So it's, it's sort of this hyperbolic picture of a grapevine, and no grapevine could do that, you know, but, but it's, it's the people of Israel have moved into the land, have expanded, have thrived, 
and uh, filled that place that God prepared for them. But then in verse 12, Asaph gets to the heart of what he wants to say, and he says, why have you broken down its walls? If this is what you did to it in the first place, to bring, bring it to this place, why have you then allowed it to be destroyed? Uh, boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. So the invasion of Judah and the, and the exile that followed is not a random misfortune. It's not just because the Babylonians were stronger or whatever. Uh, Israel's calamity is clearly an act of God, an act of judgment from God, just as the, the transplanting of the vine was an act of God. Um, <clears throat> it's at God's rebuke that this has happened. So uh, this language of, of pillaging and animals uh, foraging in the vineyard, I think the image of the, of the boars from the wilderness ravaging the vineyard is particularly distressing because, uh, first of all, whatever the Bible talks about wild animals settling in and feeding in spaces that used to be cultivated and inhabited by people, uh, it means judgment. It's a picture of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a sign that God has had enough uh, when the wild animals are taking back what was once theirs, right? They're taking back what was yours, but is now theirs. <laughs> um, and so the, the the good and healthy boundary between civilization and wilderness is no longer secure, and the wild animals are moving into your space. And that, that uh, over and over again in the prophets, that's an image of God's judgment on you. So you don't want your house to be a haunt of jackals. That's not, uh, shouldn't be a goal. Uh, or when owls nest in the rafters of your house, that's bad too. I would think that would be really cool, but it's not. Um, in the context of the Bible, it's not what you're going for. It means you're not there anymore. Who knows where you are, but you're not there. Um, and you really don't want boars who belong in the forest rooting around in your vineyard. And there's another layer of this, of the disgrace of this image, because a boar is a wild pig, <laughs> and pigs symbolize all that is unclean and acceptable to practicing Jews. So uh, it carries with it this very sobering reality that uh, the people of God, because they are in exile, are no longer able to worship him as they should. Uh, pigs in the vineyard means that even the most basic religi- religious observance has come to a grinding halt. Uh, God has given the land over to ritual impurity. Which is, which I think is maybe more of a traumatic and a horrendous thing than we as, as modern day people can really imagine. I guess it's, it's analogous maybe to, uh, the way the prodigal son feels when he finds himself in a pig pen actually wanting to eat pig's food. This is the, the lowest that a religious Jew can sink. Totally disgraced, right? Um. So Asaph, Asaph asks why God broke down the wall and allowed boards to ravage the vineyard. And it seems that he knows why. He's referred to God's judgment. But the why, I think, is I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I don't think it's because he has no idea why this happened and he's totally blindsided. I, I think he knows that it's God's judgment. But the why is kind of this raw, unfiltered cry, which many of the laments contain. It's this kind of existential experience of the wrongness of something. Um, he's crying out to God. And then in verse 15, let's see, where are we? Down here. Uh, there's a petition to God that implies at least a glimmer of hope, I think. And he says this, watch over this vine, 
the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. So I think there are rich messianic undertones in this bit of the psalm. It's, it's unclear, at least to me, exactly what Asaph wants his original hearers to, to get from it. I don't know exactly uh, what his understanding of the coming Messiah was. I don't know. Uh, but in any, ca- in any case, Asaph refers to Israel in a new way, no longer as a transplanted vine, but as the son you have raised up for yourself. So it seems to be, in a way, talking about Israel itself. And then again in verse 17... Uh, despite the fact that the vine is cut down, Asaph holds out hope that God's hand will rest on the man at his right hand. And again, on the son of man, he has raised up for himself. So that the phrase, the man at his right hand, is sort of ambiguous, but uh, seems to be me to be much more of a specific thing that implies a, a, a person, not a nation, <laughs> and a person with authority. Uh, to be at the right hand of God as a place of honor and power that we learn later is a place where only Jesus is qualified to stand. <laughs> at the right hand of God the Father. You kind of learn this when his disciples are arguing over which one of them can stand at God's right hand. And he's like, <laughs> none of you. <laughs> um, and then the term son of man, which also appears in the book of Daniel. Uh, and it's also famously one of the ways Jesus refers to himself. I am the son of man. So whatever Asaph's understanding, I think Jesus claims this psalm, uh, along with the passages in Daniel, as being about him. And he picks up on Psalm 80 as referring to himself in in other ways as well. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But in any case, uh, Asaph believes God is not forever uh, going to abandon Israel, despite the appearances. And that there's hope that he will redeem a remnant from exile, somehow, through the action or agency or faithfulness of this son of man, man at God's right hand. Um, So I think Psalm 80 contains uh, a sort of a misty foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. It's not a fleshed out picture, but but to me it's a beautiful picture nonetheless, because uh, the fact that God's hand will rest on this person will enable the people of Israel to be faithful again. To come back to God. Uh, they have failed to obey the Lord as they should, but one day Asaph foresees they will be made strong enough to live according to God's calling. Uh, and verse 18 says, Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. And so the problem is not just exile and a desire to return home. Uh, it's clearly sin and alienation between God and themselves that's the problem. Um, the long-for future is one in which the people will not just return to their land, but return to obedience and right relationship with the living God. Which, in the context of our metaphor, is to bear fruit. To come back to God and bear fruit again. Uh, but this is something that God himself will have to accomplish. Uh, the psalm asks God to revive us, and then we can call on your name again. But you need to revive us. We can't do it ourselves. Turning now to the New Testament, um, I am going to be 
really spend more time on, on a couple of particular passages and, and skate over some very important ones very briefly. So if, they're, if they happen to be your favorite texts, I'm sorry. Um, but it's just for the sake of time. There's, there's just a lot in the Bible with, that, that deals with this, this metaphor. So wedding at Cana is an interesting one. Uh, I, won't, I won't do it justice really, but uh, this is um, in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus' first miracle. And when he's at a wedding and he, he, he turns the water into wine. And it's a many layered story. I'm not even going to read the text right now, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to describe it. Um, when at this wedding they run out of wine, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, you know, do something. He says, why are you talking to me about this? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, but eventually he does turn all this water, these massive jugs of water into wine and the party continues. Um, but by transforming the water into wine, Jesus is giving us an acted out picture of what the Messiah is ushering in. For, for more, uh, for really good teaching on this, uh, I would encourage you to find Tim Keller's sermon, uh, The Lord of the Wine. It's a really beautiful sermon about this passage. And he gets way more into the, the, the nuance of it than I can. But in any case, Jesus, by performing this miracle, is giving a foretaste of the heavenly wedding banquet. Uh, between himself and his bride, the church, uh, with echoes of, of Isaiah 25, going back, well, I'll read that at the end of the lecture, Isaiah 25, uh, which is this prophetic vision of, of, a, of a feast, of a banquet in the future. Um, but there's also a much darker side to the wine metaphor, because Jesus says to his mother, woman, why do you involve me? It is not my time. You know, this is before he decides to perform the miracle. Uh, Jesus is referring to his death, not, it's not my time. And he is thinking about the cup of God's judgment on him for the sin of the world. So in Gethsemane, when he when it actually is his time, he pleads with his father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, right? But then he submits to his father and, and accepts that this is the plan. Uh, but when he says to his mother, why, why are you involving me? This isn't my time yet. Um, uh, that's what he's referring to. But in Cana, I think Jesus gracious, graciously performs this miracle. He makes, he makes a huge quantity of very, very good wine, evidently, uh, which in the moment is rescuing his friends from embarrassment and, sh- and public shame, uh, but also giving them a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that will one day be possible only because he will drink the cup of judgment, right? This is the, the image he's giving. He's, he's, it's, it's not just a miracle. It's, it's a, it's a, it's like a, acted out parable. He's, he's showing them something, um, which is a foretaste of a banquet to come. <clears throat> and then there's parables that Jesus uses, uh, and I'm not going to get into all of them, but there's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which is one of my favorites. Um, and then the parable of the two sons, the one that says, sure, I'll go and do the work in the vineyard, and the other one that says no, but ends up doing it. You know, that's, that's another one. They're both in Matthew, Matthew 20 and Matthew 21, respectively. And then there's the parable of the wicked tenants, which I think is particularly important, and I'll talk a little bit about that. It, it, it occurs in all the synoptic gospels. So in Matthew 21, in Mark 12, and in Luke 20. Um, the fact that Jesus uses uh, vineyards in these three different parables, I think, just shows how familiar and accessible this, these, this imagery is to people. The first two that I mentioned, the laborers in the vineyard and the parable of the two sons, 
it's not really a continuation of this metaphor. It's more uh, the, the the vineyard is just kind of a setting for which something else is going on. But the but the parable of the wicked tenants is more significant, I think, uh, in in terms of this topic. Um, <clears throat> Because Jesus seems to be picking up on the vineyard imagery of Isaiah and Psalm 80, but he's putting a new spin on it. <clears throat> so Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. I think people would have heard uh, Isaiah 5. I think, I think this is... Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants <coughs> to the to the tenants to collect his sorry, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. <clears throat> this is uh, Matthew's account of the parable. Um, and it's not it's not a blanket word of judgment on an unfruitful vineyard, uh, but on the tenant farmers who symbolize the religious leaders of Israel. <laughs> so he's he's narrowing the criticism to specific to specific people, those people who are entrusted with shepherding the people of Israel, those people whose authority is on loan from God, so to speak. Uh, those are the the people in the crosshairs in this particular parable. They are so comfortable with their own status and power and authority that they begin to feel like the nation is really theirs to rule, exploit, and manipulate. And the attempts that God makes through the words of his prophets to remind the leaders of Israel that Israel belongs to him, not to them, it results in the martyrdom of the prophets, <laughs> persecution of the prophets. And, and Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 27 when he, he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. So he, he comes to Jerusalem knowing what he's facing and recalling the, the history of God's attempt to save these people again and again by sending prophets to them, uh, every one of which gets mistreated. And so <clears throat> Jesus is mourning the way the tenants' leaders have mistreated God's servants, but he's also, in a sense, mourning what he knows they will do to him. Uh, the ultimate attempt by the tenants to usurp the landowner's authority is to do away with the son, right? And Jesus knows that this is what the religious leaders will do to him. Luke's version of the story takes it a little bit further, and there's a little bit of conversation that goes on afterwards, and I think he's doing this to to point out the seriousness of the confrontation Jesus has just initiated. Jesus is really walking right into it and starting a fight. And uh, Luke's, Luke's gospel continues. When the people heard this, the parable, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. <clears throat> so this is this is Jesus' way of taking the metaphor and, and tweaking it a little bit in a very particular way. <clears throat> now coming to really, really sort of what I've been building towards, which is the passage in John where Jesus refers to himself as the vine. Uh, I am the true vine. <clears throat> is John 15. And this is uh, Jesus talking to his disciples. It's one of the the, the, um, the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, or Jesus, the, these different images that Jesus uses to describe who he is. <clears throat> he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I always remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. <clears throat> and so... <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that by referring to himself as the true vine, Jesus is claiming Psalm 80 as an ancient song of longing for him. Um... Asaph's somewhat vague words of hope for God's restoration and for the future obedience of people, um, that longing is met by Jesus Christ. So he is the, in the words of Psalm 80, the son that God has raised up for himself, the son of man, the man at God's right hand. This is, uh, and he is the true vine. So again, this long shifting metaphor morphs again and takes on new significance when Jesus says, Okay, I am I am the vine. <clears throat> First of all, Jesus does not say I am a vine. Uh, he could have said I am a, I am like a vine, <laughs> um, and it wouldn't have had the same punch, would it? Uh, he says I am the true vine, which immediately distinguishes him from the false vine of of, of Psalm eighty. 
the nation that failed to bear fruit for God. He is setting himself apart. It's a little bit like when he says, I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I am not one of the bad shepherds that you've been suffering under. <laughs> you know, I am the good shepherd. There's a contrast implied in, in, in his language. And this is a huge claim, obviously. Uh, Jesus is saying, I, by myself, represent all Israel to God. That's <laughs> in a sense. Um, and because I am the true vine, I will not fail to be just and righteous um, the way my people failed. So Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who lives a life of perfect obedience before the Father. I'm the true vine. <clears throat> and so, uh, for a minute, I just want to step back and take a look at the sort of the contours of this uh, plan of God's for the world. And to me, it's an image of, of a very broad picture that gets narrowed down like a funnel, narrowed down to the head of a pin, to this focal point of Jesus Christ. The whole grand story is focused right now on one person, one human being. It starts in creation with this perfect shalom between people and God. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. They were obedient. They were righteous. <clears throat> the fall happens. This shalom is lost and all humanity becomes estranged from the Father. They stopped bearing the fruit of obedience. But from humanity, God chooses one nation for himself. Skipping quite a lot here. This is just, you know. This is... <clears throat> Israel is the vineyard of Isaiah 5. Freed not just to be free uh, and not just to worship God, but specifically chosen to be a light and a blessing to the nations. This is part of the calling of Israel from the very beginning when, when, uh, when God speaks to Abraham under the stars. Uh, but this nation fails to obey God and gets carried into exile a small remnant returns to reestablish worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Uh, this is described in Ezra and Nehemiah. You see this narrowing <laughs> happening in the story. God is gradually over time revealing a more and more specific plan. Uh, and it's getting more and more narrow. Uh, even after the restoration of, of Israel in Jerusalem, uh, everything is not as it should be. The Romans come and they... Uh, crush all opposition and the Jews find themselves in exile again without ever having left home. They are just, they are, um, an occupied people. Uh, how is God's plan of redemption gonna work? How, what happened? You know, where is the vine that will actually bear fruit? Um, what happened to the promise made to Abraham? And then Jesus comes. And in John 15 and in many other places he says, stop. Uh, I am the one true Israelite. <laughs> I'm actually the one true human being. <clears throat> uh, the, the term Emmanuel used to talk was God, God with us, God with people, but he's also a person with God. Uh, in other words, he's a representative of, of humanity to God. And so the fate of the world's come down to the life of this one Israelite. And the question is, will he bear fruit? Will this vine bear fruit? Will he be faithful? Will he succeed where the people failed? Will anyone get it right in this story at all? Um, and there's something very similar going on in the temptation narrative in the, in the, in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. There's the, we, it, we can read it with a sense of suspense. Like, yeah, if, if he really, if he fails here in his calling before God, <laughs> what is the hope? Uh, it, it all is resting on the obedience of this 
of this Jesus. <clears throat> Thankfully, uh, the vine image is an image of welcome. It's not just an image that Jesus uses to describe his perfection for us and then, and then drops the mic and walks away. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an image of welcome and invitation because Jesus is saying there is a way back to God. Uh, it's by being connected to me like a branch on a vine. Uh, remain in me or abide in me. <clears throat> and this is a, just a, a beautiful, to me, a beautiful uh, image of our unity with Christ. There's a distinction, but also a fusion between Jesus and his followers, a unity. You and I are not the vine. We never will be the vine. But by remaining connected to the vine, the branches live off the strength and vitality of the vine's root, because the vine is rooted, right? Um, the branches literally share the sap of the vine. Uh, remember vascular continuity, the grafting, uh, geeky term, vascular continuity. That's, that's what comes to mind. That, that's what Jesus does, I'm pretty sure he didn't use that term. But it's, it's this image of, of, um, two things that were not connected, now connected and really acting as one. Uh, the branch feeding off of and getting all of its, uh, um, Hydration, all of its water, as well as all of its nutrients from this central vine. And when Paul uses the phrase being in Christ, it's, it's the branch's connection to the vine that comes to mind for me. That's what being in Christ. Um, there's other images, but to be in Christ. Uh, it's not a rigid, static connection. It's not like a piece of metal getting welded to another. Now it's one piece of metal. You know, uh, It's a living and a dynamic one. Um, it's, it's a, we're, we're feeding constantly <laughs> by being connected with this vine. And we're bound to Christ in his death and in his resurrected life so that wherever he goes, we go. There's, there's this connection uh, between Jesus and his followers. Without this living, dynamic connection to Jesus, we are unable to bear fruit, uh, just as unable as a uh, pruned branch that's discarded on the ground. If you think about this, I, I uh, we did a, a, a book study on this passage a number of years ago. And I, uh, on a whim, early that morning, cut a branch off of this conquered grapevine, which is taking over the backyard. And uh, and then right later in the afternoon, right before the book study, I cut another one off. And I brought the two and put them put them in front of people. So one of them was a vine that had been severed from, a branch that had been severed from the vine for most of the day. And the other one is just freshly cut off. And one of them was, was withered and crispy already, you know, just completely dead, you know, no, nothing, um, <clears throat> completely unable to, uh, to feed itself. There's no moisture replenishing it as the, as the water evaporates from the leaves. There's nothing being, <laughs> there's nothing taking its place and it withers and, and gets dry, uh, by the end of the day. So that's the image of, that's the, the image uh, that Jesus wants us to have in our heads about a spiritual reality if we are severed from, from him. If, uh, as enough, uh, you know, as much life and vitality and fruitfulness as a branch that, that, uh, cannot feed itself and dies. So, uh, but the branch that has constant access to the nourishing vine remains green and healthy even in the heat. And it's a relationship of total dependence, but also one of joy and fruitfulness. Our intended purpose is fulfilled when we're connected to Jesus. We're bearing fruit. Um, 
in a sense, abiding in him is obedience uh, to his commands to love. He says that, you know, you, you abide in me by obeying my commands. Uh, but it's also receiving his forgiveness. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, <clears throat> and I'm really sort of wrapping up here. Um, the the Lord's Supper. <laughs> this is the last. Um, and I know that this is a ridiculous thing to kind of cover lightly uh, because you could spend days and days talking about the Lord's Supper. We could probably spend days and days disagreeing about the Lord's Supper, maybe. But um, maybe not. Um, but in Matthew 26, Jesus says this. While they were eating... No, so the, the, the passage says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, Jesus essentially establishes this eating of bread and drinking of wine as a communal, a very embodied communal act that... uh, Christians have been practicing frequently ever since. And um, I just want to talk about a few things that connect to the topic tonight with an awareness that I could say there's many other things to say. Uh, Jesus passes the cup to his disciples because he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath for sin in their place. He knows that this terrible cup will not pass from him until he drains the whole thing. But in taking the cup of judgment, he gives his followers the cup of forgiveness. And so there's this, there's a sense of an exchange going on. Uh, rejection for acceptance, estrangement for reconciliation, grief for celebration, the loneliness of the cross for wine shared between brothers and sisters. So the passing of the cup is a reminder that it is the forgiveness of our sin that is the crucial thing in our new life. It's, the, it's as crucial as food and drink. It's what nourishes us in our new life is the fact that we're forgiven and reconciled through the blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper is spiritual nourishment to people in need of forgiveness and for people who need to remember that they are forgiven uh, and need to, be, need to feed on that uh, regularly. Secondly, I think... <clears throat> This regular acting out of Jesus' sacrifice for us uh, is one of the ways in which we abide in the vine and the vine, the vine abides in us. Uh, we take the, the blood of Christ, the essence of his life and his vitality into ourselves. And this is an, a new and even more personal picture of our connection to Jesus than the vine and the branches. It's, it's, uh, with the vine and the branches, you know, they're, they're literally sharing the same sap in the Lord's Supper, we take Christ into ourselves, um, feeding on him. The Lord's Supper reminds us also that Jesus, the one true vine who represents all humanity, has actually borne good fruit for God. Finally, someone has borne good fruit for God because of his obedience to the end. Uh, his sacrifice is effective, and we get to receive the full benefit of his sacrifice. It's because 
um, you know, the Lord's Supper is, is a real thing. His forgiveness is, is, is effective to us because God has accepted the sacrifice. That's why. Uh, <clears throat> in a sense, we are the fruit that Jesus bears. <clears throat> Jesus' blood also brings righteousness and justice to the branches. I think communion demonstrates a, u- a new unity that is both vertical and horizontal. So uh, we're made one with Christ through his blood. That's communion between us and God. Vertical. But communion is also horizontal between us and our brothers and sisters. Um, with other people who experience communion with God. They're the other branches on the vine, so to speak. <clears throat> and then lastly, again, I think it's, it is a, it's another foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Uh, even as he passes the cup before his death, Jesus refers to a different meal in the future, right? Which is uh, pointing towards that. So, uh, to conclude, um, through this vine, vineyard, grape, wine imagery, <clears throat> I think the biblical writers are making God's plan comprehensible and accessible to ordinary people. And in the course of the story, there are are very difficult chapters. The the metaphor is, is a disturbing one at times. It communicates judgment at times. Uh, there's failure and destruction. Uh, but thankfully, it's a long story, and it's a very, very extended metaphor. It goes on and on and on throughout the scriptures. Uh, so it doesn't end with the rejection and the ravaging of the vineyard. It doesn't end with pigs in the vineyard. It doesn't end with the severing of branches. Uh... The metaphors extended in Jesus Christ, the true vine, in order to to bend the story back to God's grace and mercy. Right? It's, it's um, Jesus taking hold of the metaphor and referring to himself as the vine is it, it transforms the whole thing into a message of hope. So that I think, as we take it as a whole, the vineyard and vine metaphor tells a story of God's really uh, relentless commitment to bless. He's, he's set on blessing, blessing us, no matter what. Uh, and his commitment to make us a blessing, to make us into branches that actually bear fruit. And this is one of the things I love about the image, is that it's not just um, uh, <clears throat> branches that are concerned for their own survival. It's, it's branches that are concerned for their survival, but also that want to actually... Uh, to bear something good for God. And so in a sense, the fruit is the point of it all. The fruit is the point of it all, how God will use us. Um, I'm just going to end with uh, reading the passage from Isaiah 25. <clears throat> which, even though it's in the Old Testament, I think is pointing to the distant future. And is uh, it's kind of a, an image of of the the feast with the Lord that Jesus is giving is giving foretastes of in various places, including the wedding of Cana and the Lord's Supper itself. So this is Isaiah twenty five, starting verse six. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, 
the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's where I'm going to end. I know it's gone on for a bit. I'm sorry it's gone on a little longer than I had hoped. But, um, now's the time if anybody wants to ask questions or engage with the talk. Uh, make comments, that's fine. If, you, if you're feeling the, the time and you want to go, that's just fine also. Yeah, Lynn. So in John 15, uh, Jesus said, I am, I am the true vine. But now, given your explanation, it seems like it would be a little more correct to say, I am the true root of the grapevine. <laughs> I'm like wondering if maybe something got lost in the translation. I don't know. Uh, but I certainly think that part of the use of the metaphor, part of calling himself the vine implies that he's, he's the one that has the root. He's the one that's rooted in, in, in a way that a branch is not. But I'm not sure whether it's just an example of, of if there is some translation issue there or whether it's uh, that Jesus just has, a, has a, a looser use of imagery than we do. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Maddie? It's a question. Um, and I don't want to take this any further than it, it needs to be because this is something that you've been studying and it's, it's not, you know, what you said necessarily isn't, isn't a scriptural thing. But isn't the root ball, okay, that sustains the vine, but what's grafted onto it, wasn't it, didn't you say that was where the good fruit was coming from? The graft? Well, if, if you were trying to propagate uh, fruit that you really liked, or like a vine that you really liked, you would prune a branch off of that vine and graft it onto other roots, other other uh, trunks, basically. Mm-hmm. That way, you could have more and more of the same fruit because the the, the, the branches are what flower and fruit. Right. Um, and you could cut, you know, branch after branch after branch off this good vine that you like, and by grafting it onto other rootstock, you could have. Um, a whole vineyard producing the, the good grapes. Does that, does that make sense? Or? Um, yeah, I guess I'm probably just going farther than it uh, needs to be in terms of uh, um, because when he's saying that I am the true vine, he mm-hmm. is, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this root, this was good to begin with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good to begin with. Yeah. That's, that's not the wild. Yeah. Grapes. He's not saying I'm the true graft onto something else. He's saying I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Is that the, yeah. And maybe yes. because, like you mentioned earlier, how in Romans, we're, we're talking about being grafted in. Yeah. But Jesus isn't using grafting language. In right. This one. Yeah. That's, so I think that's where I got it's, it. Uh, yeah, he's not. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Because so, other, yeah, that would be, yeah. It doesn't necess- it doesn't exclude grafting that. I mean, it doesn't exclude yeah. that. As, I mean, that he, he, does, he doesn't say that, but it is there is this sense that 
<clears throat> it's more pruning language, actually. It's more like yeah. if, it, if a branch doesn't bear fruit, it gets cut off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is only yeah. one true vine. Yeah. Then it has to be like that gigantic tree that's mm-hmm. the little kingdom of God. Right, right, right. <laughs> one vine. Yeah. And the grafting has to do more with the Gentiles. Paul uses, yeah, yeah. Right. Paul, Paul uses that in uh, Romans 11 to, to, to refer to the Gentiles as, as basically this olive tree that was originally the, pe- the, the people of Israel, and Gentiles are grafted into it. They weren't a part of it in the beginning, but are now, but are now a part. Yeah. Right. Isn't it the, the tree? I have a friend who has an apple orchard, and <clears throat> the the strong tree is what gets grafted into, and then it produces the. Yeah. So usually you would have a, a root stock, which is a very strong root that's that's yes. very that's very um, you know hardy or whatever, and then you would graft whatever variety of of plant you wanted onto that. Right. So my right. four apple trees out here, they're all grafts. They, I don't know what the rootstock is, but they're all different varieties of apples, probably grafted on the same kind of root. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the point is, the top that you graft on is the part that bears the fruit and the part that is distinct. Right, yeah. right. Yes? Um, so I love this, like just the theme throughout scripture to, to see anything that can see throughout the whole Bible, so mm-hmm. thank you for this. Yeah. Um, one question I had, so in college, one of my professors referred to this book, so I can't give the details because I never read the book, but the the man who authored the book was arguing that wine in Bible times doesn't have the same alcohol content as it does today, mm-hmm. um, and he like went into all the details of how wine was made back then, which mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Couldn't explain it to you. I don't know if you came across it, and if you're studying that the alcohol content was different back then. Or? Uh, I haven't come across that, but I've, I've heard or I'm aware of ar- arguments like that. I guess, but I, I haven't really read them closely. Um, I'm sure wine was different than it is now back then. I'm sure it was no. no I mean, you just look at the way in which it was made. We don't make it. We don't stomp on it. These holes, these holes cut in the ground and then stomped on by people's feet. And so I'm sure there were different standards of um, purity, and you know, people probably wound up with stems in their wine. Uh, I don't. I don't think there's necessarily evidence in the Bible itself that it was that it wasn't alcoholic or not as alcoholic, you know, as wine is today. Um, there's clearly all kinds of exhortations about not getting drunk on wine, so there, it must have been pretty strong. <laughs> so, so I don't. I mean, sometimes I don't know what the motivation of that particular book is, but I think some people have tried to make that as a as a as a what, people who have you know are pretty uncomfortable with alcohol consumption now, mm-hmm. and so they either want to look back in scripture and find that it didn't really it wasn't really wine or something. Yeah. And I don't think there's really much basis for that. Um, yeah, Dave. Well, I think with that, it's like when uh, you see people, well, certain churches mix water into the wine. Mm-hmm. That's a practice that goes back to yeah. biblical times. Yeah. So it wasn't the wine wasn't less alcoholic. It was just they added water to it. Mm-hmm. That was just for their preferences. But yeah. it, like, it didn't matter. Like, it's still alcoholic. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you still get drunks. So it's not, uh, yeah. right. doesn't really prove much. Yeah. But, so. yeah. Uh, just a random question. There's so many uh, biblical authors that have a, like, Writing scriptures like a second location that don't 
something else before. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone in Scripture who... I mean, I'm just curious as you're reading, just because it is... I mean, it is such a... I mean, you've, you've, like, you've even shown here, it shows up in like, the ninth page of Ghost Gun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through it. I'll ask you a good question. Like, I don't know. So yeah. I'm just yeah. curious if I... I'm just it's like someone who's... You know, was was a been there, but did a little prophecy on the side. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ecclesiastes, right? He built vineyards. That's true. Uh, you did a lot of other things. Yeah. 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 Ecclesiastes. Well, there were prophets who were farmers. So, I mean, I'm just trying to think which one. Amos was a like. Uh, yeah. He was a fig tree. Sycamore tree. Sycamore tree. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because I guess maybe some of it to just when you were showing the um, <coughs> how uh, like with the parables, mm. there was a lot of work to do in short periods of time, almost like yeah. seasonal, yeah, like hiring. Anyway, it just was really yeah. it's just interesting to <coughs> to see. It was really cool to see the ancient uh, what do you call it, viticulture yeah. practices yeah. there, and yeah. just curious. Yeah. yeah. Anyone who read this this idea of vast tracts of land owned by by uh, wineries. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems much more much more common thing. Like, yeah, if you have land, you're you mean you're in Israel, you're a farmer, and you have a vineyard, and you have you know yeah. you grow you know. I don't know. Um, it's interesting that at the Swiss Libri, it's just above the town all along. Yeah. And they have their own wine, right? Just yeah. down below. And when the town, some expert in the town decides. Today is the day you've got to pick for grapes. <laughs> and nothing picked before that will count as all on one. Nothing you pick after the next day that will tell you will count. Won't even qualify. You can't even get the yeah. Libri students have often flocked down and picked grapes because they need so much help so, cool. so fast. And, and Did they get paid the same even if they start at the end of the day? Or? <laughs> 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 yeah, Dave. Did you really? Oh yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and then it's hard work. Yourself. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then you get to drink their wine and yeah. make a meal. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Gosh. Because people come in for the Ben, do you remember how Sarah had to make bread for us? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, I'm just wondering if you made us wine. No. I told you to take that. I have a policy. No exceptions, sorry. Yeah, Jane. That's nothing. Jane. What Dave was saying about the water down, I just heard the most amazing thing sometime within a month ago, John McCarthy, and it was just, I never had ever heard such a, he, I think he was like three different categories of the wine, and the water down was certainly one, and mm. he just went into such detail, and, mm. and of course I was in the car and I broke in midsection, so I didn't get mm. it the entirety, but, but it was, it was, yeah, mm. yeah, if you, Arguing for sorry. no, he was just really giving the historical, and at the end he went into a little bit, but all the historical of the wine um, differences yeah. of of that time. Okay, yeah. Just, yeah. Hmm. Isn't there uh, any classical scholars among us in the 
Odyssey. No, where where is the Cyclops and Odysseus? Is that in the Odyssey? So I'm looking at Lenny. Is, is, aren't there the massive jar, massive jars of very very strong wine that 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 are that are concentrated and that you would water down as a person? The Cyclops just like guzzles them straight. Yeah, yeah. This, so there is this concept that you have very concentrated high alcohol content wine that you would dilute and over time. Yeah, I have, this is a, quite a different question, but it just struck me when, when, when Dick reminded us that the, the image of being grafted in was a, of the Gentiles being grafted into the Jews, mm-hmm. the Jews who were God's people, which just makes me wonder um, about how anti-Semitism came, became such a massive, strong yeah. impulse among Christians, a horrible impulse among Christians. And yeah. You know, in contrast to Paul's attitude in Romans 9, you know, his love for his people, the love for the, these are God's people. God, yeah. Jesus yeah. was a Jew. And, you know, yeah. and we Gentiles are the, the ones that got, by God's grace, got, yeah. got, um, got grafted in. Yeah. That's it got stick, stuck in their heads. It's like they killed, the, the Jews yeah. killed Jesus. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. But it they wasn't just stuck. the Jews that yeah. killed yeah. Well, it seems like there was various different, very cultural blind spots that made people want to persecute the Jews, and and then it's sort of like the frustration that I expressed at the beginning, where it seems like anybody can make the Bible say anything they want. (laughs) It's like you know, if if you if you read the Bible and come away um, anti-Semitic. I mean, based on the fact that Jewish people were responsible for Jesus being... I mean, it's clear that you wanted to be anti-Semitic right. from the start. Probably, <laughs> probably <laughs> really has nothing to do with the Yeah. Edith Schaefer's book, um, Christianity is Jewish, yeah. it's a great yeah. book. And yeah. I think it's right at the beginning, there's a poem that I don't know who wrote it, but it said, How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those that choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. Hmm. And they always thought that was like, huh. yeah. Yeah. Oh, I even got the memory. Yeah. It's just yeah. a short poem. Yeah. Yeah. It really says so much. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is a, I mean, don't think many acceptances are enormously complicated. Yeah. Christ mm-hmm. get rejected by the Jews mm-hmm. and that's when sometimes when the Jews were don't I mean, this happened with Luther Luther's mm-hmm. ideas at the very beginning were not anti-Semitic yeah. when the Jews rejected it he thought now that I've explained the gospel the Jews will surely accept it yeah. uh, they didn't yeah. Lo and, behold. Yeah. and then he swung around and his anti-Semitism kicks in later in his life yeah there are times in, early, in the early church where you can see the same because it wasn't until the Christians got political power in Rome right. that, they, that the Jews made it harder. Mm-hmm. They, they made it harder for the Jews than the yeah. Romans that it made it for them. Yeah. And even in the, in the very, very early church, I mean, Christians avoided persecution by being considered a sect of Judaism. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And then the, the Romans sort of respected Judaism as an ancient religion and like, okay, you can sort of do your thing within reason, you know, and Christian Christians were viewed as being like a little little offshoot of this, and uh, but then when it became clear that Christianity was really something different, you know, um, they sort of stepped step out from under that umbrella. You've got to be really careful. Yeah, 
how we treat people who reject our, our brilliant arguments. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Right, uh, can you, what's your name again? I'm sorry. Amber. Amber, right. Okay. So in John 15, when Jesus is talking about us remaining in the vine, and mm-hmm. so if we remain in him, he will remain in us. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking, like, what are, like, practical ways to, like, remain in Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like, Abiding. I know there's the yeah. standard Sunday school that says, oh, read your Bible, pray, but, like, what does it really mean to, like, remain yeah. in Jesus? Oh, that's an awesome question. Anybody, anybody want to jump in on that one? <laughs> Yeah, abide. Because in a sense, it's a it's a call to do something active, but there's a passivity in it as well. <laughs> Remain connected, essentially, to what's going to give you life. It's not go out and get life. It's you. You are in a sense passive, but but it's but it's an active. It's an exhortation. Abide. Don't stop abiding. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Lenny. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it is reading the Bible, but it's understanding why you're, the reason for doing that is we're so bombarded with a totally different way of looking at reality and looking at ourselves, Mm. that we need to immerse ourselves in the truth of our being created as dependent beings Mm. and following the one who made us is the one who knows more about us than we know about ourselves mm. because we can we're so bombarded with a totally different message every almost every minute of our lives. Yeah. So it's it's not sort of you know, it's not like it's just taking a vitamin. It's 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 somehow finding a way to really keep focused on mm-hmm. the truth of who we actually are. Mm. Yeah. Right. Uh, and part of that, I, one of the things I found most most helpful in terms of appropriating that is in Shaver's book True Spirituality. Mm-hmm. He talks about the the center, the core of true spirituality is coming to practice moment by moment, mm-hmm. appropriating the finished work of Christ for me now mm-hmm. in this moment. Mm-hmm. It's the recognition that you know, um, as I'm aware, as I become aware in this moment of of my sin, of, you know, I just had this really judgmental thought about somebody else, or something I've said, or something I've done, or whatever, that that in this moment, appropriating, bringing it to the cross immediately, bringing it to Jesus, and, mm-hmm. and, and saying, thank you, you've paid for this. I am, I am, I can live this incredible promise that we can actually live with a clear conscience, that it's possible that we're called to appropriate the finished work of Christ now, so that I can live moment by moment with it, without feeling guilty. And that may mean I need to go apologize to somebody. It may mean I need to mm. ask forgiveness from somebody that I hurt. But before God, I can have a, a clear conscience. What an incredible gift to mm. think of how much carrying around of regrets and of fears. And so for, mm. for, that's been a hugely helpful thing to me, is shape this idea of moment by moment appropriating the finished work of Christ for me now. He talks about Christian existentialism moment by moment. Mm-hmm. It can't be stored up. It can't be done once for all. It's mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. by moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, thank you. You forgave. You died for this. Yeah. And that's, for me, that's yeah. really helpful in terms of abiding in Christ. Mm-hmm. 
Which which is not um, the moment by moment things the thing that's really really important. I think it's something that we have to. Um, yeah, because this this has been very helpful to me in just keeping my head straight in terms of what it means that I belong to Jesus. <laughs> you know, um, it, it means at, ti- at, at times I may have a very strong emotional sense of that, and it just sort of happens, and I know I belong to God, and I know that, you know. Um, and there's other times when I have to, in a very disciplined way, tell myself yeah. it's for this kind of junk and nonsense that Jesus came and died. And uh, it's, it's for this prideful thought, for this word, for this um, whatever it is that I'm convicted of, uh, why else did you come, Jesus, if not for this right now? And applying that, almost almost, you know, coming up with some sort of like, I don't know, not a visual image, but some, some, some sort of Almost ritual, mental ritual of saying yes. It was. It's for this, you know, that that you came and that you died and that you rose again. Um, and it may be, it may be all day long. Yeah. And like you said, like Marty said, it's not. It's not something that clicks and we get it and then we're. And to me, um, you know, uh, t- to me, part of the moment to moment, you know, remaining in an awareness of the forgiveness of Christ, that the finished work of Christ, what it looks like is this. Um, and Tim Keller's done a lot of awesome teaching on this kind of idea, but um, which I've tried to sort of appropriate. <laughs> but um, our, our standard way of thinking and the standard way most other religions present reality is that we work, we work, we work, we try, we try, we try in order to get some sort of future approval or legitimacy. <laughs> and that's the way jobs work. You know, if we work really hard, we might get promoted. That's the way school works. If I study really, really hard, I'll get a good grade and I'll you know, get into the school I want to get into. You know, perform, perform, perform for some future evaluation of my performance. And a part of that perform, perform, perform motivation is fear. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we don't really know whether we'll be found worthy. We don't really know whether we're going to be, um, uh, be evaluated well or not. And, and that is so ingrained into how we think, uh, how we function, and in some ways in a necessary way. I mean, if someone doesn't work hard at their job, they shouldn't get promoted. You know, it's not as if that's just an evil thing in itself. But... Um, if we take, if, if we sort of just smuggle that dynamic into what, what the gospel is, then we completely misunderstand. We cut ourselves off from the divine. <laughs> it, it's what, it's what the, it's, it's, um, and, and, and so I find myself having to, the moment to moment thing for me is flipping it out on its head again and saying, no, actually, rather than working really hard for some future tenuous evaluation of me, uh, I am completely confident right now that I'm already accepted and embraced by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's already done. I already have, that's, that's who I am already. And now I can set out and try to live in a way that reflects who I already am. And the motivation isn't going to be fear of maybe I won't measure up, maybe God won't, will think I'm not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. That's the whole point. Uh, but uh, but <laughs> Christ has given me his righteousness. 
And so now I can uh, strive with all my strength, but out of joy and, and gratitude for what's already been done, not out of insecurity. Um, and obviously that, that's a totally different motivation in life. <laughs> it's one that's likely to give me a sense of joy and life rather than you know fear and... and um, and so the moment-to-moment thing, so this is all getting to your question of what does it look like practically to abide, you know, to me it's, it's a constant process of flipping the perform for future evaluation on its head. Oh, that's not it. It's, you know, the evaluation, the evaluation's already been given, and now I strive to, to, um, to honor God. Um, and striving, you know, my former pastor said something in a sermon once, I don't know where, he might have... I don't know where it came from, but it's like Christian life is striving from approval, not for approval. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a helpful little mm-hmm. mantra <laughs> because it's because it's just without thinking, intuitively, I switch it around all day long, and and um, and so that that's to me. But I, I would say that's what comes to mind when I think, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It's just just like, nope, it really is already done. You know, my acceptance is real. I'm striving from a place of approval, not for some potential approval. Yeah. Is there another? Anna. Yeah. I'm just gonna uh, carry on with that a little bit, but a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm Knight has this poem about. It's basically a reflection on "I am the true vine," mm. and he asks the question in the poem, "What would it feel like to be grafted in?" Mm. And he kind of takes on personifying of being a branch mm. and has this line about oh, like, what would it feel like to have to feel the sap within you mm. rise mm. and that's an image that has mm. just stuck with me as it relates to as Marty was saying as it relates to forgiveness definitely the sap yeah. even you know it can kind of connect to my imagination to blood mm. the blood mm. of Jesus you know yeah. is, with, is within me or has been poured over me so yeah. to speak yeah. But also to see sap as forgiveness, yes, but also like the joy, the yeah. life of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so sometimes I just rely on that image in my mind, in mm. my imagination, that like, or even asking the question, is the sap of Jesus mm-hmm. coursing through me mm-hmm. today or in this moment? Mm-hmm. Or what is the sap that I'm <laughs> feeding off of right yeah. now? Is it the life mm. of Jesus or is it something else? Is it yeah. like, Jealousy or fear yeah. or, you know, all the many things we could, mm-hmm. we could try to live off of, but it's just kind of an image I return to as far as abiding. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I mean, just going back to the passage, which I think there's clues in the passage as to what it means to abide mm-hmm. or remain. And, and he says there, if you abide in me or remain in me and my words yeah. mm-hmm. abide in you, yes. or remain in you. Yeah. I think that's part of the sap, which yeah. is not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like what you're saying. You just told me the science school answer is just read your Bible, but mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. partly true. But it's how, mm-hmm. how the words, how you take them in, how they dwell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." Mm-hmm. That's a different reading mm-hmm. of the Bible and yeah. learning ways to read the Bible that help you do that, mm-hmm. um, do that well. And I don't think that's, a, that's separate from the spirit. The no. spirit and the word are always together with mm-hmm. Jesus. And so it is, the sap is the Holy Spirit and 
the words of Jesus mm-hmm. flowing in us. So, it, but it's worth dwelling on. Like, yeah, there's, a, there's, I think, lots of things in that passage that yeah. that give you clues as to mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. That abiding is. And, and maybe and maybe intentionally doesn't give us a, a technique. Right. And here's how you do it. Yeah. Because you know, because you know Jesus is wise that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The word permeate mm. just comes to mind. You mm-hmm. know, as um, we as he dwells richly in us. I just I I feel like that every fiber of our existence. That he can wrap around that, mm. you know, and um, I think my goal is definitely to where it can't be extricated. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> oh, yeah. I'm just following up on what Dave what Dave said. Um, I had an experience quite a few years ago. It was when we when Dick and I first moved here and started this branch of Berea. I had to go to the hospital to have minor surgery, and I had, my son was having major surgery so a week or so later, so I wasn't even thinking about my surgery, so I just went really blithely, and it was just a one-day thing, vocal mm-hmm. modes, and um, I didn't even think to bring a Bible with me, I just went to the hospital, it was only going to be a day thing, mm-hmm. whatever, and I experienced an um, incredible satanic attack, which was, I had no... I had no doubt that it was a satanic attack of, of just um, terror, fear, death, the pit mm-hmm. sort of language. I was sharing a room, room with a woman who had breast cancer, mm-hmm. and it was just this horror of, mm-hmm. um, of a godlessness and mm-hmm. no hope. And I didn't have a Bible, and I mm-hmm. asked the nurse, this is Marlboro Hospital, can you find me a Bible? Surely Gideon's Gideon's have put a Bible in some room here. And she went around the search and said she couldn't find a Bible anywhere. And it gave me um it gave me new a new motivation to memorize scripture. Um not out of a legalism or something, but mm-hmm. I, I did have certain I had some verses that were memorized. Yeah, I had hand in the ready. Yeah, yeah, but and I went to, you know, um James, you know, mm-hmm. uh, resist the devil, he will flee from you, mm-hmm. draw near to God. And I just went over and over and over that mm-hmm. in my mind. And, and any other passages of scripture that I that I had memorized, mm-hmm. but it gave me a, um, a and, and eventually just dwelling on those and repeating those things and really bringing them into myself and yeah. depending on them, um, this thing lifted. But it was, mm-hmm. I had never had any experience like that. It was just horrible. Yeah. Um, and that, but it gave me a, a motivation to say, "Well, I need to memorize more scripture. I need to have mm. more scripture right in me." I also have to never go to a hospital without a Bible. <laughs> 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 memorize it, but assume that you won't be able to remember yeah, it. Right. <laughs> where were the Where were the Gideons? Come yeah. on. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of um, me. <coughs> Obviously, legalism is a bad thing, but there's a lot of damage that's been done as uh, by Christians trying to make sure they're not being legalistic. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I wouldn't want to be legalistic and be uptight about reading the Bible every day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't the, the, the point isn't 
Nobody says that about a cell phone. Yeah. 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 Somehow saving myself and ticking the boxes and, and earning brownie points with God by doing this—that's what legalism is, you know. But uh, at, out of a fear of being legalistic, if I neglect the food of Scripture that I need to to, to be in touch with reality, there's nothing good about that. You know? and so I sometimes feel like you know um, I don't want to be guilty of giving the Sunday school answer, but sometimes I feel like it's it's a fine answer. Like, why you, you know, I've, I've talked probably about a hundred people over the past few years who feel distant from God, who grew up in the church, who just don't have this sense of being connected to Him at all, and haven't read their Bible for five years. I'm just like, well, let's start there. And it's not about being legalistic. It's about, like, there, God has graciously communicated to us in a way that we can comprehend. Like, why wouldn't you... You know, um, yeah. So right. You know, I'm not saying you know that we should be um, Pharisees, but mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, there's certain God. God made structure yeah. for a reason. Yeah. You know, yeah. and thankfully we have enormous resources. English speakers, English readers have enormous resources to help us understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. it's important to to. Um, there's not one way to read the Bible. There's not one method. And I think we need to chop and change. And mm-hmm. and if something gets stale, try something different. And I, I find, I've been reading, um, <laughs> for the last many months, I've been reading through the prophets. And only two days ago, he gave me this really helpful commentary on the prophets. Where's my dad earlier? On the Old Testament introduction. And just reading... Having read Haggai, you know, first without it, and then re- then reading just this few pages in this mm-hmm. commentary it was so helpful. Oh yeah, yeah it was post exilic. Oh, this is what was going on. <laughs> it was really helpful. So yeah. we get, but we have access to <coughs> commentaries that True. are very readable, that are very um, you know very geared toward lay people mm-hmm. that can help that can help us. I mean that that's one approach. There's lots of approaches. Meditating, meaning yeah. taking a very small. A short passage, a few verses, of just really chewing them over, mulling them over. Mm-hmm. Psalm 103, at the beginning, that's one of the ones that I have memorized. It's, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and mm-hmm. all that is within me. What's his holy name? Forget mm-hmm. not all his benefits. And you can just spend a long time thinking, okay, all that is within me, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. My mind. It means my feelings. It means my will. It means my actions and I mean all his benefits you could spend the rest of your life one by one and and that that's you know that can be really helpful but there's not one there's not one method that's always going to help all people so not feeling stuck with one approach but looking for ways of of um you know and praying God this Mm -hmm. is your word and it's stale to me I need help Mm -hmm. Um, help me to find a way to and then you would say music, I'm sure, too. That hymns, mm-hmm. yes. my goodness. Yeah, yeah. We really yeah. immerse ourselves. We find ourselves humming, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, him or maybe yeah. sometimes, you know. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's that's a that's a way in which the word can dwell in us richly. I think I think it's in in music. That's true. It's a different way. Yeah.
Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, a big proponent of reading large swaths of scripture fast as well, as one way among yeah, many. Right, it's, it's not the only way. Obviously, you, you miss detail and you don't get into the depth that you need to with individual passages, but to me, it's an important discipline to do that every so often to remind, for the very reason that I gave this lecture tonight. It's like, to, to remind ourselves that, yep, it's one story still. <laughs> yep, God is up to the, it's the same God at work here and here and here and here and here and is bringing this thing to a conclusion uh, where, where we can lose sight of that by, by you know, understandably doing a deep dive into a passage that's troubling or that we don't understand we want to get, want to, get uh, to the bottom of it. Um, but it's good to do both. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> there are just times when I just do, you know, just yeah. go through. And then, like this year, I, I decided I, I have been doing the Bible in a year in various forms for mm-hmm. several years. And I realized this year as I started that I was just not into it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I think I need to take a break. Yeah. from doing it this yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I have made this route and it, I, right. that's not what I want for this. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's no, there's no there's no rule as to how, the one way that we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just a tiny addition to that, to change translations mm-hmm. sometimes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. There came a point in my life where I heard, I heard the, the NIV so much growing up yeah. that if I heard, I mean, I, and I had memorized so much because I was in Awanas for years, yeah, 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 yeah. and if I heard certain passages, it, I couldn't even hear the words anymore. I just heard like, and that, and that, and that, and that. Charlie Brown. And I know people have different opinions about this, but I read the message for two years. That was mm-hmm. all I read. Mm-hmm. And it was like I could hear the scriptures mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Right. The young adult, I just needed to, to hear it a little differently, yeah. and, you know, with the plan to go back to an actual translation, sure. not just yeah. to paraphrase for the rest of yeah. uh, my adult life, but it was really healing and helpful. It's fresh. Yeah, yeah. it's really fresh. I think that's really true. I think that um, it's, it's, you know, we're supposed to be deeply familiar with the Word of God, but there's also the, the hazard of familiarity, which, yeah. is, which is, it can just, you know... That's what cliches do in language when you, you hear something over and over and over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. over. It, it just yeah. it doesn't carry meaning anymore. Yeah, it's right. like the, the sharp edges are worn off. You yeah. Know? And it yeah. the film of familiar. The film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice, disgusting <laughs> picture. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something to disrupt that. Because it's, you know, it's not the word God's fault that we're bored with it. Yeah. It's just something, that, something in us that needs mm-hmm. <laughs> awakening. Yeah. Okay, well, I think I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you very much.